That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money. How it works. How to invest it and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 200. And it's titled The Great National Debt Debate. 200 episodes. Been just about four years. We have 200 numbered regular episodes. There was some holiday specials. So we're a little bit over 200, but it has been the most enjoyable thing to to interact with you. LaPrell and I have been on a road trip for the last 90 days. We've had a number of listener meetups. And one of the things that we've done on this trip is meet with, with podcasters that I know. And one of those podcasters will join me today in, in this week's episode. We're Currently staying in Palm Beach County on Riviera Beach. And Joshua Sheets of Radical Personal Finance has stopped by yesterday and we discussed the national debt. Joshua did a show last summer. I was out biking and I happened to be listening to an episode that he did. It was episode 466 on the, the national debt, and he was really, really concerned about it. And I, I wrote him an email and, and told him why he shouldn't be so worried. And we decided that it would be best to have that conversation in person. So Joshua came over yesterday to the condo where we're staying, and we had the discussion, and that is what is on this episode. But before we get to that, I just want to thank you for listening to the show, for sharing it with with your friends and family members. Money for the Rest of Us has just about 7 million downloads, probably a little more than 7 million. I've switched podcast host. It's kind of hard sometimes with the stats to see exactly how accurate they are, but appears to be roughly 7 million downloads. 75% 75% of the audience is based in the U.S., 25% in non-U.S. The, the top countries are the U.S., obviously, followed by Canada, Australia, United Kingdom, Germany, and India. And the, stop, the top cities are New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Washington, Chicago, Seattle. Top five states, California, Texas, New York, Florida, Illinois, in Washington. Thanks again for listening to the show. And with that, let's have this discussion with Joshua regarding the national debt. We touch on certainly balance sheet issues, but the conversation talks about cultural issues, politics, political issues, tribalism. And then we stop. I'm used to doing a 30-minute show if you listen to Joshua's show, he doesn't have a hard stop when he does his shows. And so we stopped recording after about 35 minutes. But 
we weren't quite done. And so we started recording again for another 10 minutes. So there's, there's a break there at about the 35, 37 minute mark. And then we start again. I hope you enjoy this episode. David Stein, welcome back to Radical Personal Finance. It's good to be here. So a number of months ago, I recorded a show talking about the future of basically the U.S. government economic situation, the fiscal situation. And in that show, I talked extensively about Lawrence Kotlikoff's discussion of the unfunded liabilities of the U.S. government. And I started the process of declaring my position on the unsustainability of current U.S. government and fiscal policies. It's my personal opinion that the U.S. government and uh, the U.S. American culture is effectively bankrupt and that the process of that bankruptcy will proceed forward over the coming decades. I don't know a time, but it'll take over the coming decades. We'll see that bankruptcy um, more and more become apparent, the great default, as some people have termed it. Now, after that show, you emailed me and you said, Joshua, I don't agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) And in that email, you said, let's talk about it. So here we are months too late, but we're finally getting back to talking about it. So what I thought would be fun is let me, in short, describe my understanding. And I want to keep today's show free of a lot of numbers and detail. That's better discussed in writing. But I'll very briefly describe my position. And then I want to hear your position and and hear what you uh, believe and don't believe. It seems to me that if I do an analysis of the last century of U.S. American spending and government policy, it seems like we have made commitments on the level of government that we will never be able to keep. Most importantly, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, or I guess I should reverse that that order, Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security, are effectively bankrupt. They don't have enough money to cash the promises that they have made. And so over the coming decades, I expect those to be, uh, over time, defaulted on in a myriad of ways. And I look at the political situation in the United States, and I see no possibility. I see no political impetus. I see no one who's standing and saying, let's stop borrowing money. Let's pay our bills. Let's actually balance our budget. Let's actually figure out how to run on the money that we take in. Let's figure out how to adjust taxes and revenue so they're at least equal, let alone pay off debt. What do you think? Well, I think it it gets back to what is money. In other words, a lot of the analogies, the U.S. is like a business or a household. So it has constraints. Right. But it doesn't. The the government's money, essentially it's magic money. Money is digital. Right. And so when we look at what happens when the government spends, it's not, doesn't have to sit there and wait for this money to show up. And so when you go back to what Kotlikoff in his generational accounting, he's looking at all these promised payments and he discounts them into today's dollars, and he looks at the potential tax revenue right. and discounts it today's dollar, and there's this huge fiscal gap. Right. But the U.S. government has run a deficit basically forever right. since it's been, been around. And if think about it in terms of, of monopoly money. If it was just monopoly money, we wouldn't have these things. So while I might agree with you that there's some fundamental decline in the in the U.S. government, mm-hmm. I don't think there's not a fiscal constraint. 
And we have examples of that. We have, we have Japan that has much greater debt to GDP than the U.S. But what do you have happening? You have the Japanese central bank effectively buying that national debt. They now own 40%. They've bought it out of money they created out of thin air. The con- but that doesn't mean there's no constraints. And, and that's, that's where I think it's, it's the key. It's not that the government can spend as much as it wants. Because the wealth of a country is the ability of the private sector to produce in goods and services that we can eat. And so if a government like Venezuela is spending ridiculous amounts of money and buying off its population, yet has destroyed the private sector, then you have massive inflation because you have essentially a collapsing economy. There's not enough food. The government's spending money and you have hyperinflation. But in an economy like the U.S., where you have a a robust private sector and our deficits are are small relative to the size of the economy, we can continue indefinitely like we've we've been doing and have done for centuries. And it's not going to be a collapse based on accounting. If there's going to be a collapse, it's going to be based on a, a morally bankrupt government that doesn't follow the rule of law. So interestingly, I just have been reading, uh, I'm late to the party, I, I've been aware of it for a time, but I've just been reading David Stockman's book, The Great Deformation. Are you familiar with that book or ever read it? I am, and I don't necessarily agree with him either. Right. So I, I know a lot of people, he's a very, uh, of course, divisive figure. But, but I, I've not read the book. Right, I've, read, right. I've read reviews. I'm I, only, I might have started it. And, and I'm only partway into it, but it's in something I've been really grappling with this question. And he lays out a very strong case that uh, in the 2008 financial collapse, that the moral connection between the natural free market system and the government getting involved, that that moral connection was broken. And he makes a very strong case that all of the governmental intervention was unnecessary. Now, I also read the official U.S. Uh, report from that was issued by the, the inquiry into the financial collapse. And of course, they would disagree with one another. So the moral dimension is one thing, but, but let's, let's stick with the financial... The when I agree. I, well, let me... I, Go ahead. I don't think the government should have intervened right. okay. how they do. So we're and agreed I don't on necessarily agree that the Federal Reserve should be creating money right. as part of the quantitative easing program. I don't think that was necessary. But that's separate from the fact that they can. Right. So I think we ha- I have to acknowledge, and I want to acknowledge, that for all of the talk of doomsday and collapse that we've seen people talk about for decades, <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. So those who say it's inevitable have to reconcile, well, it hasn't happened yet. And lots of people have said it was inevitable long ago. But do you think there is a limit with regard to deficit spending, do you think there is a limit? And if there is, what would it be? Because after I recorded that show, I had an, a, a listener who seemed very well informed write to me and said, Joshua, you're wrong. And you're wrong because you think that there's a limit. And we've proven that there effectively is no limit on government spending. And what you need to do is read this, 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 which demonstrate that there's no limit. The government continue to do this because, as you say, the government controls the monetary supply. They can print more money. They can always satisfy their obligations because there is no effectively no limit. So, the, the, no, the, and the limit is the ability of the private sector to produce. You're seeing Venezuela as a country where they've met their limit. They, they, they have impeded the ability of farmers 
to grow crops. They don't have enough food. Right. And it didn't matter that the, the government can create money out of thin air. It can create cryptocurrencies. Right. Because there isn't enough to eat. And so that's the fundamental limit. Where there's not a limit, and, and oftentimes people, you'll see articles with, that don't understand how the, the monetary system works, will say, well, our grandchildren are going to have to pay for this debt that we've incurred. Now think about that. Has anybody come to you from your great-great-grandparents asking for the debt that the government took on in the beginning of the century? I would, say, just, I would say yes, but in this way, that uh, a significant portion of the federal expenditure, I don't have the number in front of me, but I would say, what, 15, 20% of the, of the federal expenditure is currently spent on interest. No, it would be less than that. Interest on the federal debt, right? And that debt has accumulated since World War II. That so we are still currently paying interest. Oh well, yeah, that, we pay interest on it, right. but nobody's collected it because what is government debt? It's it's assets of most of us. In other words, that interest flows right back into the economy and it becomes income. And these are you always have to look at who's on the other side of the balance sheet. Right, government debt are household assets, and and what is creating that debt each year because. One of the things people talk about, we need to have a balanced budget. Right. Well, the government can set what they want to spend. They really don't have control over the revenue because that is determined by the decisions of households and businesses, how much they want to save. And let me, let me just give a brief example. Just, just think of if, a, if businesses and households decide that they want to save more, that means they spend less. And if they spend less, then they're buying less from other households and businesses which means their income drops, which ultimately means that there's less tax revenue. Because if, if businesses, if people are say, trying to save more and businesses are trying to save more by spending less, then other businesses aren't going to have as much income. People aren't going to have many jobs, so there'll be less tax revenue. And that naturally puts the government into a deficit position. Even if the budget was balanced at the beginning of the year, we're going to spend whatever, $5 trillion here, and we hope to get $5 trillion in revenue, as soon as the household and business sector decide they don't want to spend as much, then the revenue drops, the tax revenue. And that's why we naturally have bigger deficits during times of recession because of unemployment benefits. But it's, it's, it's ultimately the fiscal situation of the federal government is determined by households and businesses, assuming that the government isn't out of control in terms of its spending. I mean, there has to be some basic understanding as we're not going to be like Venezuela, <laughs> right? And if we don't have that, then, then yeah, then we're in trouble. Well, and I, I, I used to have optimism uh, that uh, perhaps somebody, especially the Republicans who ran on the idea that we're going to be fiscally constrained, I used to have optimism that the Republicans might follow through at some point. But with this recent, what I would term a boondoggle, with this recent boondoggle of uh, tax bill a few months ago and spending bill that was passed by Republican-controlled Congress and Senate and signed by a Republican president, I have lost any optimism that there's any serious politician, with the exception of maybe Rand Paul, who, who, who staged some theatrical objections. But it seems like there's almost nobody who actually stands for fiscal constraint. Uh, so I've lost that optimism. But let me go back. Let's, let's talk about cost. Well, go, go ahead. I don't. Yes. But I don't think they're out of control. 
In other words, we could run a 3 to 4% deficit to GDP indefinitely. We've done it, and it, it's just, it's been done. And, that, and it goes back to showing when is the collapse going to occur from a, from a fiscal standpoint. Japan has twice as much debt to GDP as the U.S. So 240% debt to GDP. We're about 103%. And Japan is doing just fine and isn't, doesn't have issues with inflation because their population is shrinking. And so, again, the, the constraint is, is there enough people to produce the goods and services? And in, it'll be interesting to see because Japan will, will get into trouble way, way sooner than the U.S. If there is a constraint, Japan is going to get in trouble. But right now, it's just not there. Okay. So here's the point, though. The numbers that you're referencing are on-book liabilities, the official federal debt as is calculated, which is, what, 20 trillion-ish? Yeah, 20 trillion. About 20 trillion. Whereas what Kotlikoff's point is, is the unfunded liabilities, which in his estimation, depending on the year of his work, range anywhere from 180 to $200 trillion. And what he's describing there is the commitments, the promises that are made uh, to the recipients of Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security that are not accounted for in official on-budget mm-hmm. debt. And and so here's where, in my guess, after I've spent about a decade kind of thinking about this, and a decade ago when I started to think about it, I said I, I had this impression that well, one day the federal government is going to run out of money, and they're not going to. That's that's not possible unless you have a society and anarchy, because the power behind the U.S. dollar as a made-up currency without any fundamental connection to anything constraining, the power is the taxing authority of the entity and of the state behind it, and the state's ability to use force to enforce their taxation. And so on that basis, the U.S. government can always write any number of checks that they want, because they have the monopoly or the majority of force, and so they can force tax revenue and they can just write checks. But the problem is, what are those checks worth when they actually get there? And so I don't, I don't see any any way that all of a sudden that he, you know, all of the hoopla over uh, government shutdowns, notwithstanding, which is just in my mind political theater. Uh, I don't think that at some point in time you just stop. That the that the the U.S. government stops writing checks, but I do think that the value of what is promised continually constricts, and it goes back to the world of financial planning. What did I tell when I was working as a financial planner? What did I tell all of my younger clients? And it was it was just this a standard in the world of professional financial planning: don't plan on Social Security. Now that's just the tip of the iceberg because Social Security is one of the healthier ones. When you go to Medicare and Medicaid and you look at at the the numbers that are required, there's no way that that I don't see any way that those promises can be fulfilled. And that's what I refer to as default. Well, and, and that, again, that's, that's the – first off, my issue with Kotlikoff is it, it takes everything from the future and puts it in the, pre- in the present. We do this year by year. So five years from now, when it comes to Social Security and Medicare – the government can create the money. I think we, we at least right, agree right. on that. I agree. The issue is, will there be any doctors or hospitals to service the retirees that are sick? And, and that's the constraint. If, if they've created money and there's not enough doctors because everybody's retired, then we're going to have inflation. 
But through advances in artificial intelligence, robotics, just productivity increases, if there is a private sector that can, it's just, it's a question of accounting. Like get the money to the retirees so they can pay the doctors that are there. Now, if the doctors already have too much business and there's not enough doctors, then you have inflation. That's the constraint. The constraint isn't the accounting. And, and a great example. So I used to have one of my clients as an institutional advisor was a retirement home. And they had a $30 million portfolio. But they also had financial statements. So every year in their financial statements, they would have their fees that they collect. But a big portion was realized gains. And then they would have their expenses. So they had their wealth, which was their actual investments. But they had their financial statements. And I remember one year, the CFO came to me and said, we don't have enough gains because my financial statement shows we're losing money. Yet their portfolio is up that year. And so I suggested, well, we could sell some stocks and realize the gains from an accounting perspective. And she's like, no, we can't turn the portfolio. But in fact, that's what she wanted. She wanted her accounting statement to look better fiscally when their wealth over here was their actual investment assets with a ton of unrealized gains. It's the same with, with this type of generational accounting. The, the, the balance sheet looks terrible. The government has always been insolvent because it always spends more money than it receives. The issue is the wealth. The wealth are the people and the households of businesses. Will they be able to supply enough goods and services, including medical treatment, for the populace? We can take care of the accounting issues, getting the money from whatever, other people. But if we don't have the capacity to produce, then we're in trouble. So for the sake of argument, let me grant your point. Let's pretend, let's assume that accounting doesn't matter because I, 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 I concur with your point. Uh, somebody who has a failing business and mountains of debt isn't necessarily doomed to guaranteed bankruptcy. Well, they, may be, they can't create money right, either. That, right? <laughs> correct, which is always the government has a monopoly on money creation and, and on force to, to, to extract tax revenue. But, uh, so, but let's go then back to a, a realistic accounting of the future because the, those financial decisions are predicated upon the productivity of the sector, the, the health of the economy. And I, I would dissent with your point that the government has always been insolvent, I, the U.S. government. I don't see that in history. It seems as though there have been times of insolvency. You know, Right after the Revolutionary War, the early U.S. American government inflated like crazy, and, but it's gone through periods. But for the last, say, since the since 19, early uh, first quarter of the, the 20th century, there has been this continual trend towards increasing levels of debt, increasing promises, etc. Because it loses money every year. I mean, when I say right, insolvent, right. I'm saying they're, they're right. like most right. businesses right. cannot lose money every single year. Right. I mean, they're effectively insolvent. And the government can, but it, okay. by some definitions, right. Right. it would be insolvent. So now let's talk about cultural capital. And, and, and I'm so torn on these issues because on the one hand, I can't deny that Wall Street for the sake of using a very collectivized term, Wall Street has been deeply productive with their assets. Wealth is growing. But I don't see the same strength reflected in the U.S. American culture. I see a very sick U.S. American culture. And I'm concerned with the idea that there is enough cultural capital 
to sustain through for decades. What, and so am I. What do you I'm, think? Oh, exactly. I mean, that That's my, and I've talked a lot about some of those issues on my show in terms of income inequality, just the state of education, just the state of, of ethics. If people, because money is trust. Right. And if we don't, if we no longer have trust as a society, if we don't trust our neighbors, if we don't trust businesses, if we don't trust government, then you're right. We're in serious trouble. But what what bugs me is the focus doesn't get put on that. It gets put on the government's balance sheet. And we get into this, well, we need to balance the budget. Why don't we focus, why don't we understand what money is and understand since we're no longer on the gold standard right. that we can create as much money as we want. Why don't we make sure we have policies that assure that decades down the road we ha- have a functioning private sector, a productive private sector, an educated private sector. That's what worries me. Not accounting issues regarding how money's created, et cetera. Because, because all the evidence shows to date that between the central bank and the U.S. government, the money can be created. What's not clear is whether hopefully the private sector will still function <laughs> in the decades down the road. But we can take it year by year and hopefully solve these issues but not get distracted by this sideshow of the national debt. Let's take a break from this conversation with Joshua to hear some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash David. That's netsuite.com slash David. netsuite.com slash David. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So where do you see reasons for optimism at the moment? I am really excited by the, first off, I think people are fundamentally good. I mean, I've been traveling for three months, or I guess a month and a half now. And 
people are good and they want good things. And a, and a lot of people are trying. And we certainly have problems, but I think by and large, society are good people trying to do the best for their families. That's a positive. I think the flexibility, the freedom we still have to start businesses here. And we don't have, people complain about red tape, but it's so much easier to start a business here in in Cuba where they've effectively outlawed any private business other than running a restaurant, running out a house in a room in your house and driving a taxi, right? That's it. Here we have that flexibility. I think the advances in in robotics and artificial intelligence, the ability, our ability to produce goods and services is is growing dramatically. Now that that's creating potentially unemployment problems to where we might have everything we need, but nobody has a job because we can create so much. That's a potential issue. That would, again, that's an accounting issue again. How do we get money? To the people, but if we have the goods and services, and that's what then I'm optimistic about that. So I'll give you my list, and then I'll ask for your list of what you're concerned about. My list uh, would be number one: I'm encouraged by the decentralization of uh, information. I'm encouraged that now uh, a ten year old child in the poorest neighborhood or the of the United States or even the world can access. The, the knowledge of the world through a $40 smartphone. And I'm deeply encouraged about that. I'm encouraged about uh, the decentralization of education and schooling. I think that uh, by the leader, for example, Salman Khan with the Khan Academy, I think that he is the uh, harbinger of just a massive change in education. I don't, I don't function, I don't live in kind of mainstream circles, but I don't know, a, I hardly know any young couples who are parents who are sending their children to government schools. Almost everybody is looking for other alternatives. And I see that as a great pr- opportunity for children to be trained and instead of being uh, stultified and dumbed down by the monopoly on edu- education, I see that as positive. I agree with you as far as the ability to start businesses. Uh, I still live in the United States of America simply because I don't know anywhere better. If there were better, I would I would go, uh, but I don't know anywhere better. And it is much easier to start businesses in, in the United States than, than that. Um, so I, I agree with you on those things. And I see that uh, that that it's still, it's never been easier to meet the basic needs of a person or a family, of shelter over their head, uh, of of food in their belly. Then it then it it's never been easier than it is today. And I'm I'm very enthusiastic about some of the advances in being able to shelter and feed people using. Uh, uh, robotic and, and AI technology to uh, grow crops locally within the city using very calculated computer-controlled systems or to 3D print houses for people for $5,000 that are safe and comfortable and warm. So I'm very motivated and and optimistic about those trends. And just the increasing ability for individuals to connect with other individuals. So I do see those things as positive. What are you concerned about? What trends do you see that that keep you up at night? I'm concerned about tribalism, people breaking down into groups. And one of the things I, I, I hate when 
when people say they should do this or they should do that, as opposed to we should solve this together. So the, the strife, the just how mad people get, right. it, it's not, in politics, for example, it's not enough to disagree. Right. They hate the other side. Right. And, and that, that terrifies me. It really does. The, the lack of ethics, the, the corporations that knowingly pass on costs to, to innocent, negative externalities, and just lie. I mean, that, that, that will destroy a country. And so on one hand, I, I go around, and I think people are basically good, but I, I think people get selfish and they forget. They don't think about the consequences of some of their actions sometimes, particularly in, in business. So, but I, I think generally speaking, things are better done on the local level. And I've talked about that on my show. I, I worry about bureaucracy, big, big government and things of that sort. I think there's some things because the government actually has the power to create money, there's some things better for the government to finance, but then have it implemented at the local level. If, if we get to the point where everything's created very easily for what we need, but people don't have enough jobs, then I think the solution is not to have the federal government hire a bunch of people, but finance businesses, give them grants to hire people to go visit the elderly or things like that. I mean, but it needs to be done at the local level. But those are my concerns. I think it's just a lack of integrity concerns me. The breaking down into, to, into tribes, income inequality concerns me. When, when businesses, all they care about is profit, so they don't pay their workers enough. And ultimately, they, they, and, not the, they, they sh- and it shouldn't be the government mandates it. I'm saying as a business, we shouldn't be short-sighted. We should pay right. our people fairly. Now, it's hard to figure out. Business is hard. Yeah. It concerns me that businesses generally, would, it's easier to buy back stock, which is one of the things driving the stock market. Correct. Right. As opposed to investing in the future and investing in their people. Again, there's always a balance. But it's, easy, it's easier to buy back right. stock as a CEO. You, you get the immediate impact, and you don't have the uncertainty of other areas. But I mean, those are a few of my concerns. But generally, I'm optimistic, and I think these are issues we can solve. I'll give you my, uh, just a few of mine. Obviously, this is not comprehensive, but a few of mine would be, uh, I agree with you. Uh, I concur with you about the uh, lack of ethics. We've lost, as the United States of America moves into what seems to be, under current understanding, what seems to be a post-Christian era, we've lost a common ability to talk about ethics, where we all affirm the existence of a moral standard, but we dissent about what moral standard there is. And so different people view things differently on discussion of something like minimum wage, right? You have two people. One person says, you must mandate a minimum wage because that's morally right. Another person, I would I would say, you must not mandate a minimum wage because that's morally wrong. Not that you shouldn't pay someone, but that that's a, that's a use of coercion and force. And so we, I see this continually as we've lost the ability to discuss things with Within a within a frame where we can find common understanding and and we we lack a common uh, discussion of, of, of ethics and, and and I agree with that yeah and we and we don't teach 
ethics. We don't, we, because of this concern, we don't teach formally ethics. I, I went, through, we, we do in some place. I went through uh, when I was getting my master's degree in financial planning, one of the capstone courses was a discussion of ethics. And it was in an, it was drawn from an entirely, um, uh, uh, secular perspective. And the philosophy professor who was leading that uh, that charge, I asked her, I said, what is the basis for these ethical issues? And how do you know what it, what it, what is right in the situation? What, what is right in this financial planning situation? What is right for this company? How do you, where do you, how do you reason from this? And since there's no agreement on those ba- first principles, the application of it becomes different. I'm concerned about the, uh, I agree with you about tribalism, and I see it as so dangerous because especially in the United States of America, in, from my assessment, we've lost any kind of, we've lost a majority of our common cultural understanding. I don't feel almost any connection to somebody who is a U.S. American. Just because somebody's an American, I don't feel any kind of national pride or national sense of identity with them. Um, I feel that sense of connection to people who are outside of that, but I often feel more culturally connected to somebody who shares more of my worldview, who's of another skin color from another continent, than I do of my neighbor, because there doesn't seem to be that historical uh, identity that's being passed on. And I don't know how a nation continues to function if it doesn't have a common heritage, a common creed that that is passed on from generation to generation. I've lost that myself. I, I feel very little connection to the um, neighbor to my neighbors. And then increasingly, there doesn't seem to be um, much outworking of that sense of community. Uh, those the communities are are tend to be siloed and not geographic in nature, but ideological in nature. Uh, and without belaboring the point, it's hard for me to find a whole lot of examples where things are really flourishing, where people are really feeling good, where people are working towards common uh, common progress. I'm sure they exist. Just oh, I think, hard I think they find. do. But I, th- I think the key is just go out and meet people. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you do it, right? But right, right. meet your neighbors, reach out, be human. I do think as a, as a nation, we have a common set of values, freedom, entrepreneurialism, et cetera. I, I think other nations do too. But I, I, one of the things that does concern me is where America is the greatest country in the world is what politicians say. Well, you know, there's a lot of great places. Right. And there's a lot of amazingly good people everywhere. And we just need to be kinder to the people and connect more with people. And I think that's one thing the internet has done is, is to allow sort of that common language, that common connectivity. And while we might have some of these, these moral discussions, minimum wage, et cetera, if we get to the point where we just straight out steal and that becomes accepted, that's well, I, the problem. But it, we already are. And we, we, here's my argument. We already are there. So, Half of the population says those other people shouldn't have it, so we're going to take from them to give to these people. I call that theft. Now, it's theft by majority vote, but that is theft. And so certainly, is it different than me going and pilfering the stapler from my, off, my boss's office? 
in a sense, but at this fundamental basis, it's no different. So you talk about this heritage of freedom. I, I don't see it. Maybe it's a generational thing, but I don't see a lot of people. I don't hear a lot of people talking about, I affirm your right to individual freedom. It feels to me, speaking very subjectively, it feels to me like a lot of people want to say, no, you don't have the freedom to do this. No, you don't have the freedom to do that. You want to start a business cutting hair? Yeah, you have to go and apply for a license. You want to go and move into this comp- uh, this occupation? You need to go and ask for a license. You, it's, it's a constant stricture on freedom. So I, don't, I, I, I disagree in dissent. We don't have a common heritage of freedom. We talk about it. We talk about defending freedom, but there is no, I don't see the common heritage. Those, those, are, those are issues on the margin. You can still, even if you have to get the license, and we can talk about the, the amount of regulation you need to, 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 to cut people's hair. You can't do that in Cuba. You, you can do it until you get reported and until the government goons start knocking on your door and say, are you cutting hair illegally? I have been in meetings with people. When one lady, one was a client of mine. I, I don't know how she ended up as a client of mine. She was cutting hair in her living room in the inner city and been doing that until she got the knock on the door from the government goons saying, we heard that you're doing unauthorized business activities here. We're a lot closer to Cuba than we once were. <laughs> that's what I see. <laughs> well, I, I, we probably are. And, that, and that's, a, that's a different discussion in terms of how much regulation there should be. I mean, you and I have talked about your inability to have chickens here in, in Palm Beach County. Right. And, and <laughs> we can talk, you've talked about it on your show. But yes. But those are issues regarding policy and the limits. At the end of the day, though, the, this theft that you discuss, again, the government can create the money, right? They're not really taking money from you and giving it to somebody else. They're taking money from us because we have taxes. Then the other hand is creating the money to spend. And we, we have to come together in terms of how much should they spend and what they should spend it on and the amount of policy. But coming full circle, those are issues other than the accounting of what the national debt is. I think that's sustainable for many years in the future, but we take it one year at a time. So my closing question for you, do you affirm that it's possible that there would be various forms of default bankruptcy and collapse uh, in coming decades. And if it were possible, what would you look for? I, w- I would look for just complete lack of honesty with our leaders. It, it, the government's been taken over by, it be it the private private businesses or whatever, just right. you, and you can tell, I mean, I don't think we're there yet. We, we're still arguing about what the money should be spent on, but we are a far c- cry from, I'll give the example of Venezuela, where the government is threatening their citizens that you have to vote for me or we will not give you your food stipend because they're starving. We're not even close to that yet. And, and for that, I'm fortunate, but we could get there and that's, why we have to all have right. to be involved as citizens in terms of who's elected and at the local level, get involved locally and get out and meet our fellow citizens right. and, and don't just stay in, indoors in our gated communities. So I affirm that it could be, I could be wrong and I hope that I am. We're certainly not in Venezuela, but I hope that all of us can work together to avoid <laughs> that fate. Thank you for coming on. Hey, it was fun.
That was 37 minutes. So here, here's, I'm going to, I turn the recorder back on because I just want to hear this. So uh, um, we got that time pressure off. The, the issue that I face, and I'm asking this sincerely, is, is how, old, how old are you now? 53. Okay, so you're, so you're about th- 20 years older than I am, and you've been involved in a similar path as, as I have in terms of the financial world. I don't want to be a catastrophist or an alarmist. I don't want to um, you know, scream that the sky is falling when the sky is not falling, which is why I'm very, I'm very sensitive to the people who make foolish decisions and—, and um, and say, well, you know, by 2010, <laughs> the world's going to collapse and the, the U.S. dollar is going to be worth. I think those those things are so overblown and overstable. Like the U.S. dollar selling a newsletter. Yeah, yeah. The U.S. dollar is the strongest currency in the world. Right? But I also don't want to just be a Pollyanna where everything is perfect because I see throughout history a systematic ebb and flow of growth and decline growth and decline empires collapse they do collapse and so just because somebody has said it will collapse and it hasn't yet doesn't mean that it's necessarily not going to collapse and i think back to the question of freedom i hear almost nobody advocating for freedom i don't hear and i know poli- i think political leaders are important because they reflect the population to the extent that anybody can reflect the population i don't reflect the population i'm a a voice crying in the wilderness you know just kind of saying what i think is right but a pol- politician needs to appeal to people's uh, to to a, a larger branch to get elected if 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 a democratic action works as it's supposed to so a politician is going to reflect the the culture tell me who you hear talking about and advocating for freedom as a fundamental principle of Amer- U.S. American society. Well, I guess it depends on your definition for freedom. I, I think that you you choose the definition. Just tell me who. Like, and I'm not sorry. I'm, I'm not being snarky with you, but you. I don't care about the definition. But what would you define as freedom, or any definition you want? I guess the ability to get up and provide for my family. And go where I want to go. And within reason, do what I want to do without necessarily impeding or putting harm on others. I think we, we, we have that. And so I think it's more a question of degrees. Maybe we don't have as much freedom as we would like. And we can argue about laws and regulations, etc., but as I've traveled around the world, we, we have so much more freedom than – we have plenty of freedom. Right. And I mean, you and I have talked about zoning issues, right? Right. Well, I mean, they're – governments overstep their bounds because – and I've seen this at the local level, right? At the local level, it's amazing how much influence you can have at the local level to the extent that they've outlawed chickens in Palm Beach County. But they used to outlaw – outlawed chickens in Rexburg, Idaho. Well, the citizens came together and said, you know, there's a lot more places in the U.S. where you can have chickens in cities now than there were 20 years ago. Right. Because as citizens, we decided we want that freedom at our local community to, to have fresh eggs. And so I think, I mean, that's an example where freedom's gone the other way, right. despite where we are. And, and so I do, th- I just, 
I don't feel constricted day to day in terms of what I can do. I really don't. You start a radical personal finance. I started money for the rest of us. Nobody said you couldn't do that. Many places, they would have. And, and so that, that's a freedom. That's, that's a huge freedom we have today that we didn't have 30 years ago. Everybody can create their own content, have their own radio station in terms of a podcast. Right. That's a huge freedom. So I, I affirm that the United States of America enjoys more of these freedoms than in most places in the world. I affirm that. As I've traveled, every time I leave the country, I'm just so thankful for the opportunities. Um, I think, and I, I've said this on the show many times, if, if you, and I probably, it's been a while since I've been outside the borders, so maybe it's time to take my own advice. But if you're feeling um, down cast about your possibilities that you have in life, get on an airplane and go somewhere else and you'll be thankful for your job. Uh, you know, my wife and I on our honeymoon, we traveled to Haiti and that's just off the shores of, of Florida. Uh, I always come back from these places just thankful that I can have a job, that I can work, that I can do it. Because when you're in a world where uh, 75% of people can't even get a job, uh, who want a job, it's so broken that you're thankful for the ability to go and get any menial job whatsoever in the United States of America. And perhaps I'm, I'm, I am prone to thinking like an ideologue, but I just look at something as simple as work freedom, uh, as freedom. A majority, seemingly, a, a significant percentage of the population um, believes that it's I have a number of friends who are immigrants to the United States of America, and um, most of them, uh, with a couple uh, from different countries, a couple of them are um, out of compliance status with the United States in terms of immigration law. Several of them are in compliance with the United States in terms of immigration law. But I am so frustrated at the the idea that the U.S. government thinks that it has the moral authority and right to tell a person, no, you can't work for, uh, uh, no, you can't go and do honest, productive work to provide for your family because you haven't applied for the proper paperwork or that the U.S. government would have the temerity to think that it can say to an employer, no, you have the, the you can't hire this person uh, because they don't have the appropriate visa requirements to do honest work that you need them to do. Now, maybe I'm in a... Now, that's what's uh, fascinating about that, right? Because that, that, I agree with you. And that, which is why this is a great conversation, that's not a conservative position. No, no. And this is my frustration with, this is what I am fed up with, with <laughs> the political world. Because it's like every about 50 years... The Democrats and the Republicans basically swap places and take each other's positions about every 50 years. And that's what frustrates me because if, 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 if there, I, I've not heard of a Republican uh, position, I've not heard of a Republican, um, uh, maybe there are, I, haven't, I don't hear a Republican politician affirming somebody's right to work. Now flip it around. Let's just pick on the Democrats. So we pick on everybody and annoy every listener. Uh, on the same hand, there are lots of Democrats and Democratic politicians who say you should be able to hire somebody regardless of their immigration status, but we're going to require you at the threat of force to pay them $15 an hour whether the work that they're doing for you is worth $15 an hour or not. And so I deny both of those 
premises. Mm. I affirm the fact that any person should be able to make any other private contract with any other person as long as the work is moral and ethical and legal, as long as those things are there without interference. That's freedom. But and I, I agree. I, I don't agree. hear anybody affirming that. And so when you talk about freedom, yes, we do have freedom. But I look at it and say, is this not an inheritance from centuries of work that, that are unique to the, to the U.S. American experiment? Because the, 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 the early colonists of the United States were desperately longing for freedom. They were seeking religious freedom. And now I find myself as a religious minority with, with much of my religious freedom diminished and what religious freedom I do enjoy banished to the idea of private practice as long as it's not public or as long as it has no effect on your actual life. And so I look at that and say that the heritage was freedom, but where is the continuing press towards freedom? I don't see it. All I see is a continual stricture. Now, compared to the rest of the world, absolutely, it's there. But I don't see that, that, that no, change. No, and I, I agree with that. I, I think religious freedom, there's less of it than it was. And I don't know. And, and so I, I use this as, as <laughs> evidence for my position that this common – I don't think – we don't speak a common – understanding like we don't we don't there, i don't hear those common ideas reflected in u.s american culture i hear the platitudes uh, of you know we live for freedom fight for freedom uh, etc uh, you know we all inherit the freedom that people have died for i hear the platitudes but i don't see much of the results most of the freedom seems to me to be um Enlarged by individuals, but but largely by individuals who, with technological changes, you know, there are tremendous freedoms. I, that's why I stated those things, like the 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 destruction of the monopoly on the press. I love that. I, I'm thrilled with it. Now it's very uncomfortable, right? You got to deal with fake news and, and all this stuff, but it, but it's it is a, a good thing for freedom. And I'm the inherit in, for example, um, home education, uh, uh, just simple things. Like I was born, um, I was born at home. Uh, when I was born, in a time when home birth was not particularly officially sanctioned. I was uh, homeschooled at a time when home education was not officially sanctioned. It was very much a gray area. Whereas today, um, it's relatively easy for anybody who wants to take control of those things to do it. But I don't hear that common conversation. So I'm ranting and raving, and I don't know what my point is, so I'll let you say something Get on the road like you plan on doing, right? <laughs> and and travel around and uh, come to Idaho. There's a lot of freedom out in <laughs> Idaho. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Thanks, David. So that's episode 200. Hope you enjoyed that. Earlier, I mentioned we'd been on the road for 90 days. It's only been about 50 days. We, frankly, I'm losing track of time. Also, you can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. And while you're there, sign up for my free insider's guide. I I indeed do a, a separate essay every single week that doesn't necessarily cover that week's topic. So things that we I've covered in recent weeks, we talked about how big or wrote about how big indexing has gotten, provided an update on that. We took a closer look at the steel industry, the amount of jobs leaving the steel industry in light of the tariff situation that we talked about a few weeks ago. I, I've written 
did an essay on, on socialism versus capitalism. So some of my best writing is in that weekly free insider's guide email. That's the only place that you can get that additional content. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word insider to the number 44222. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I cannot not considered your specific risk situation. No, not providing investment advice here. Just general education on money, investing in the economy. Thanks again for being a listener to Money for the Rest of Us. We've done 200 episodes. I have no intention of stopping. So I look forward to the next 200. Have a great week. <laughs>